Welcome to a new episode of the early days of micro-mobility. In today's episode, I will discuss the future of public transport with Scott Shepard. Scott Shepard is a digital mobility expert, entrepreneur, startup advisor, and a thought leader who understands and is passionate about the intersection of cities, movement, and technology. Scott, welcome to the early days of micromobility. It's an honor to have you on. You have a lot of experience in terms of public transport and urban planning. So it's nice to have your opinion on this industry as well. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. No, it's, it's an honor to join. I'm glad we we're able to uh, actually come together and uh, talk about yeah. <laughs> uh, this, uh, <laughs> this uh, interesting world we all live in, in, in mobility. <laughs> and beyond. And I want to jump right back into the crazy, crazy COVID time. Yeah, I'm hopeful that it, it won't be too long, but we'll see. <laughs> I mean, we're on year two, so <laughs> I would love to have your opinion on the influence of COVID in terms of public transport, because obviously, suddenly people were not allowed to use trams or trains that often and especially the lockdowns also affected it. So before we, we kind of like analyze the influence of public transport mm -hmm. and how it was before, what was your opinion when you, when you saw the influence of COVID and lockdowns on public transport? Well, um, there's a couple different perspectives in terms of the reaction of public transport authorities or to use the term PTAs and how they tried to respond to the emergency, the crisis. If we look back at starting in March of 2020 in April, uh, there was a, a complete, you know, a move away from any type of shared space. So the whole uh, concepts and um, terms we were using back then over almost two years now was social distancing and flatten the curve. Social distancing, flatten the curve. We kept hearing that. Now, how do you do that? Well, we want to maintain as much distance as possible. And what they perceived as the highest transmitter or vector of COVID or pandemic at the time, which was not even based on scientific evidence, was shared mobility and public transport. So PTAs uh, reacted by either shutting down their services or really reducing their um, ability to have uh, higher capacities. And by doing so, they basically created a unnecessary um, panic and scare on the part of passengers and riders. Uh, and what this did is a, a couple things. So what we saw in North America, I'll look at North because I wear two hats, you know, even, I'm an American based in Lisbon, Portugal, but I'm always comparing contrasting uh, models of mobility transatlantic, both the sides of Atlantic, because I worked 20 years in the US. Now I've been in Europe for the last four and a half years. So the North American model of public transport has always been weak from the start, at least the last 75 years, as it's moved towards, you know, auto centricity and just single use, single mode, et cetera. So the entire role and value proposition of public transport from um, a North American perspective or U.S. perspective has always been marginalized, at least for different uh, socioeconomic groups, profiles, et cetera. So COVID basically just um, amplified and exploited those weaknesses such that it was marginalized, that it wasn't even a viable alternative for anyone but the most uh, vulnerable emergency workers, as well as day laborers and others that did not have the ability to uh, connect digitally, work from home, et cetera, et cetera. So you could see these real kind of gaps in terms of socioeconomics of the haves and have-nots and who had access to mobility 
and how um, public transport was basically relegated to the have-nots, certainly in North America. Now, we saw this trend in Europe too, although uh, Europe, in terms of its uh, centralized role from a governance perspective, from a policy perspective, and then just from a physical investment perspective of transporting uh, on average about 80 to 85% of all inhabitants via public transport in European cities, there was certainly a decline from, uh, I would say, probably a drop in 60 to 75% uh, average daily ridership in uh, most European cities uh, come uh, March and April of 2020. But it's seen a slow, uh, I would say, improvement and uptick but it, it, it never was perceived as a uh, marginalized mode. It was more treated with care. And I would say inhabitants did always view the um, you know, centralized, I would say, value proposition of public transport for fulfilling their daily needs. But they uh, exercised caution either by mandate from governments or by um, personal, I would say, precautions. But as we have now experienced four to five waves of COVID now over the last two years, we've seen a uh, slow but steady improvement and uptick in ridership. So now we're seeing in Europe, we're almost at about 80 to 85% of normal in terms of uh, average daily ridership across most uh, Central and Western European cities. I'm not looking at the UK, but uh, mainland Europe. That includes here in Portugal. That That is a huge uh, success story in the matter of thinking about a uh, global pandemic and in terms of where we came from March 2020 to where we're at now. Uh, one, kind of this return to normal, this understanding of the um, the role that public transport plays. And in terms of how we've adjusted our daily habits in terms of we're able to, one, uh, address social distancing. We're able to either, we're not necessarily able to flatten the curve, but we're able to have a, um, I would say, a habit of movement that allows for at least the use of masks and the use of uh, services that can be integrated within each one of these pandemic shocks so that service does not have to be shut down, it doesn't have to be declined, or does not have to be compromised. And for myself as a daily user of public transport here in Portugal, using Metro Lisbon, uh, as well as for Tagus, the commuter rail, um, the service and the quality is pretty much almost at pre-pandemic levels right now, if not more. So uh, a lot of the um, the fear and a lot of the, um, the shock that we initially saw has equalized now. Although Comparing this is from the European perspective. Now looking back once again, west across the Atlantic in North America, we do see a slow but steady increase in uh, public transport ridership. But I do not necessarily feel that without the assistance of the 1.1 trillion uh, U.S. dollar um, stimulus act to help kind of reinforce operational service for public transport, that it would have never recovered to the level of European cities without this kind of uh, economic stimulus push. And it's still yet to be uh, seen to what level um, public transport can uh, help in a post-COVID recovery. So I guess that was kind of a long answer to short question, but one, it exposed the weaknesses. Two, it reinforced the central role of public transport in European cities. And three, it's yet to be seen how um, public transport can recover in North America, albeit fixed drop, because we're seeing a very strong push right now for demand response transit 
in North America. And it's yet to be seen how that will either complement or cannibalize public transport. Because again, uh, there's such a weak value proposition on the part of PTAs in in the United States that it's yet to be seen uh, how public or private these these modes are going to go. And I'm kind of uh, sitting on the sidelines waiting to see what's going to happen because uh, it's it's a bit disconcerting, to be honest with you. In North America, the role of public transport, will it become too overly dependent on demand response transit? And will we be replacing uh, medium to well-performing fixed route lines in U.S. cities for the sake of technology? And that's something we really need to think long and hard because to dovetail on another topic, which is related to mobility as a service and public transport, is the role of on-demand transit because here in Europe, on-demand transit is simply a feeder service. It basically reinforces that central role of well-performing bus, rail, metro lines, fixed routes. They do not get replaced. Unfortunately, North America, a lot of them are getting replaced or they're being rethought of as zone-based geographic coverages, which serve a purpose for what we call transit deserts. And I think transit desert is a valid term in the industry, but we have to be very careful of the policy choices we make because, again, with public transport, it's a matter of pure geometry. Or to quote Walker from Portland, Oregon, it's a trade-off between coverage and ridership. You cannot have both. So by simple mathematical geometry, you can cover as many riders in a short geographic zone, or you can cover less riders in a wider geographic zone. But as we Americans say, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You have to make a policy choice. You need to have a balance, but I think technology can can support you in, in, in that matter. But it's actually great that you uh, have a lot of experience with the American, um, I mean, the American uh, landscape in terms of public transport. And you you talked about a great point. You said that in the United States, there the, um, the public transport is a little bit behind when it comes to uh, here in Europe. And also you talked about the, the single use uh, vehicle, but... I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. Don't you think maybe in the United States it's related to the infrastructure, for example, because I know the roads in the United States are different than the roads here in in Europe. Uh, Obviously, also the landscape Uh, in the United States, we have a lot of wider landscape where for public transports like a bus or a tram is not that ideal. While here in Europe, like in Lisbon, for example, it's the perfect place to have a tram because Lisbon everything is close to each other, everything is like, um, you know, made for a tram, uh, basically. So I I would like to have your opinion to why the United States is lacking behind that part. Is it related to the infrastructure uh, of the the roads, uh, for example? And also, I want to discuss the the new uh, transport bill, uh, the the trillion uh, transport bill. Obviously, I saw on Twitter that people were a bit, um, they, they weren't that happy, they were a bit disappointed. And I want to to have your opinion on that as well. I also want to understand why in the United States they are still, you know, promoting the big trucks, um, you know, instead of like the, you know, because public transport can be like trains can be very useful in the United States because you have such a wide landscape. So why is there not a push from the government to use more more uh, public transport and instead of having like the boring company where you have like underground rail, uh, tunnels with with the car. <laughs> Okay, so that there's um, a lot for us to cover here and unpack. And so you've, you've laid out the gauntlet for me. Okay, so let's start. The first uh, topic is infrastructure or what, I, or what I like to call, as an urban planner, the built environment. 
which the built environment includes infrastructure, it includes land use, it includes your street network, it includes all the different layers of the, the geographic landscape. So in North America, obviously, through our historical settlement, it, it's always been kind of low to medium density. It started as an agrarian uh, settlement across a continent based upon European colonialization, you know, the, the whole thing. So I think without getting into a history lesson, the expansion of a, a continent and very disconnected uh, settlements across the territory um, were never as highly uh, urbanized uh, based upon the historical fabric as the European continents. That's one. However, too, there is a, uh, a notion that um, the United States has always been reliant on the automobile and has never been really that, um, I would say, uh, rooted in public transport. However, there's another story to that, another layer to that, which is that Starting in the middle to late 19th century, after our U.S. Civil War, there was a, a large investment in um, uh, public transport networks, whether they were horse-operated, whether they were electric rail or steam and uh, powered um, intercity rail networks. And many of these were operated by uh, private companies. And these, we did not have a national or a public uh, operating company for public transport at that point. And a lot of these were tied, certainly in my home city of Los Angeles, California, to uh, the expansion of um, investment in uh, real estate. So if we look at a city of Los Angeles, which is a region of 12 million inhabitants across, uh, you know, the second largest city in the United States, if we look back over 100 years, it actually had one of the largest um, transport networks in North America at that time. And the reason why is because private investors basically laid out um, electric tram lines across a wide region for real estate speculation, which created new towns and settlements across a region of Southern California, basically moving in concentric circles outside of Los Angeles. This leads to the current concept of urban sprawl in Los Angeles and the freeways we have today. But the original mode for intercity travel across these regions and territories was uh, basically rail transport at that point before the uh, popularity of the automobile. So if we kind of move through history, how people moved within cities and across cities was by rail over 100 to 75 to 100 years ago in North America, including Toronto, New York, many different cities. However, artificially, there was a policy choice made at multiple levels of government as well as private industry to basically pivot the North American city towards what we call the future. And the future at that point was rooted in notions, especially during the interwar period. If we look between the First and the Second World War, there was a school of thought in urbanism, in architecture, as well as engineering, um, which was called modernism. And modernism was basically propelling our society out of the ancient regimes of monarchies, of dictatorships, and of old um, you know, notions of um, nation states to a new futurism. And the new futurism met, meant the city of tomorrow. So if we look at the city of tomorrow, we look at many of the key figureheads in that time period. The French Swiss architect uh, Le Corbusier thought of the radial city and the city of tomorrow and these cities that were basically structured around segregated land uses, 
uh, and the prioritization of the future mode of transport, which was the automobile. So if we look at that in the United States, because the United States was almost kind of a test lab for that futurism because it had the lower densities and had the ability to grow and to test out these new kind of schools of thought and theories of urbanism. The U.S. proved to be the best test bed for these, I would say, um, implementations that some of which were rooted uh, in Europe. Many of them came from France and Germany and Switzerland, but they were experimented in American cities. And what was the, the epitome of the American city to experiment? Los Angeles. So Los Angeles basically did a complete 180 degree pivot from rail-based transport to auto-centric mobility. Thus, we have the freeways and highways. So these were artificial policy choices made to, um, one, promote business interests, the city of tomorrow, to promote the future of America and the continent. But also there are very negative and deleterious influences at play, which were exploiting these future utopian visions, which were rooted in uh, American history. So we need to talk about uh, race now. We need to talk about um, segregation. And we need to talk about Americans' dark history in what we call Jim Crow. And uh, basically, de jure uh, legalized segregation in the U.S. American southern states from basically the 1870s to the 1960s. So legalized segregation basically meant that land uses zones could legally be segregated based upon blocks, buildings, etc., on skin color. And while northern states and cities did not have that legal control, because again, as a legacy of our American Civil War, which was fought over slavery and nothing else, basically the northern states which were aligned towards abolition and towards the freeing of slaves still had uh, basically systemic white supremacy rooted in our entire American culture, whether it was legalized in the South or what we call the other uh, Latin term de jure or de facto in the North. So it wasn't legalized, but it was accepted segregation. And what was the best form of, le of non-legalized segregation in the North was through the separation of land uses through zoning was by constructing highways and uh, freeways to basically bisect neighborhoods to segregate different uh, you know, uh, races, classes, ethnicities, which we saw in all North American cities, and other legalized structures that provided um, the ability to put place covenants or restrictions on the sale and transfer of real estate and housing to different races and classes based upon neighborhoods or a concept we call redlining in the United States. So all these legalized tools that were uh, used to basically promote de facto segregation in American northern cities were a result or the dark side of this basically futuristic city of tomorrow, segregation of land uses, auto-centric mobility, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where we're basically at today. So that's where we hear about uh, Joe Biden, we hear Pete Buttigieg, we talk about healing the wounds that highways basically slice through neighborhoods it was all based upon policy choices and um, basically, uh, you know, apartheid-like policies in North America that tried to basically separate policies, populations. And in northern cities, Constantine, it's important because, again, they didn't have the legal tools like they did in the U.S. South. But this was, if you have to look at the history of the United States, this was a reaction to what we call 
the Great Migration in America, where 4 million African-American citizens moved from the American South to northern cities from between 1920 to 1940 and beyond to escape Jim Crow segregation. So it's really important to understand how population movement and how our cities and business interests and policymakers basically separated our cities as a reaction to uh, these, uh, I would say, transformations of society and tried to basically promote the status quo. So we can't even talk about mobility. We can't talk about urbanism or anything without understanding the historical and societal transformations that were happening uh, in the United States post-Civil War from the Reconstruction era all the way through the Civil Rights era of the 1960s. And without rooting that in our context of dialogue, we are speaking in a vacuum, in a bubble, and we don't even understand how our cities function. Exactly. I like how many levels that you actually answered the question, because without directly explaining how impactful mobility is for people's lives and people's societies throughout the years, you kind of like really explained it very, very well and showed it how impactful Um, mobility is and access to mobility because it affects people on different parts of their lives and it can be generational as well. So that is very important to do it very good uh, from the start. And if it wasn't done good uh, at the start, you you can still improve now and uh, and make it better because it impacts so many people. Public transports don't always get the credits they deserve because they are less sexy than shared mobility or, or whatever. But actually, public transport, I believe, is one of the most important things in people's uh, lives and society's lives. It's what makes a society thrive sometimes, you know, because uh, when you look at the access to mobility, people can get to the job, they can travel around, they can, you know, it's it's a part of the economy and, and, the, and the well-being of society. So that is something that is uh, often forgotten. But thank you very much for pointing it out and also talking about the history. Uh, and obviously, you talked about how it influenced, um, you know, the the history in the United States. So another thing that I really want to discuss as well is public transport is obviously often uh, or always regulated by, uh, you know, the government. However, the government sometimes lags behind when it comes to using data to to make uh, policy choices or when it comes to innovation. Where do you think we need to find the balance to be a step ahead and to uh, to be innovative in the public transport landscape? Because I believe, at least in Belgium, because that's that's uh, where I have the experience, public transport has been lacking behind a little bit with the innovation and um, with using data to provide a solution that fits with the modern modern day needs. I know you have a lot of experience with that, also in the mass department. So that's why I really want to dig deeper on this subject as well, uh, the subject of innovation. And I want to have your opinion on that. But I also want to see, uh, I don't only want to discuss the problems. I also want to hear a little bit about you, what you think about the possible solutions that we can do, you know? So I think COVID has provided an interesting opportunity or it's forced the hand of public transport authorities to now start thinking multimodal, whether they wanted to before COVID or not. We're starting to see public transport authorities be a bit more open for embracing other private shared mobility services, which is very interesting. So that is one positive outcome. It's not a problem, but it's an interesting trend we're seeing right now. And with that, I see that with uh, public transport and the uh, digitalization of the services, whether it's through GTFS 
or other uh, data standards. We're seeing an interesting shift right now towards uh, open APIs, as well as the ability to share either fixed schedules or real-time information between mass platforms, and then basically be able to collaborate with uh, shared mobility providers. So we see a, a more of a, a leveling off effect where I would say uh, public transport is being forced, certainly here in Europe, to move away from that kind of centralized monopolistic model, which is very uh, fixed and rooted in the status quo. And it needs to think much more on a user customer centric perspective and less just about counting passengers. So it needs to think about the, the quality it brings to the ecosystem, not the quantity. And that changes the entire reporting of its key performance indicators, the KPIs. So what is it going to report on right now? They're going to be focused on uh, the accessibility of their services and the quality of the service, not just the amount of riders they transport. And that ties into this whole concept of the multimodal journey. So not thinking of public transport in a silo as one mode or as one domain completely segregated from other modes, but thinking of how the other modes can complement and enrich their service through a network effect. And that could be either through a mass platform or it could be through many different digital channels, but you have to think of the digital infrastructure, this layer that enables public transport to deliver better mobility access to its inhabitants. And I think that's one area of an interesting opportunity that PTAs are starting to explore and to consider right now. I'm not saying every one of them is, but many are just simply being forced to, to remain competitive and to uh, better think about kind of this post-COVID landscape and how they can uh, provide better value. So that's one thing. But I think another thing is there's a slippery slope, as we Americans say, of uh, embracing innovation, but not um, pivoting too much towards I would say uh, all digital or all privatized. And that's a, a um, it's a disconcerting trend I'm seeing in public transport right now. And I, I mentioned this before in a previous topic, which is a cannibalization of public transport and being so, I would say, seduced by technology or by shared services that maybe critical backbone uh, operational functions of fixed route are being quickly or... Um, over time chipped away at digital services that are basically shipping, shifting riders from one service to the next. And I don't see that as a value add. I see that as, again, a cannibalization. And I think that there needs to be a lot of caution exercised by the role of taxpayer-funded public authorities to maintain and influence their role as the orchestrator of shared mobility. So they need to actually take a stronger role in the future, one, not to be privatized or cannibalized, but actually to reinforce their role as that broker between the shared mobility services, not the monopoly, but that conductor so that they can basically construct more of these meaningful multimodal journeys that provide more equitable, sustainable, and economic outcomes. And I think that that's where we start looking at some really interesting and positive opportunities but again, I think there's, there has to be a balance between the strong centralized role of PTAs as a conductor, but not being too monopolistic, but also not, um, I would say, uh, trending towards, unfortunately, what we see historically with many North American PTAs, to use the French term, is laissez-faire, a little too hands-off, 
a little too free market and allowing the private sector to basically operationalize the ecosystem. That is not a trend that we need to, um, I would say, work towards because that will be at the harm of uh, inhabitants and citizens. Although we're seeing that veiled in many different articles and thought leadership pieces recently saying that the wave of the future is uh, autonomy and public transport or digitalization or innovation or providing freedom and flexibility to have just on-demand services at your fingertips. But at what are the costs of that though? And what are the policy trade-offs? And I don't think anyone is really asking those right questions because we're getting seduced in the marketing. So we really need to dig a little deeper and see what are the uh, trade-offs in making these policy choices. Because at the end of the day, you know, uh, again, to use a lot of these Americanisms, you know, we, we hand over the, the, the keys to the car and then maybe uh, a private driver take, takes that away from you and you, you lose that ability to influence. So I think there, there's much to be said. We're seeing a lot of interesting uh, innovation and investment in the public transport space in mass, in DRT, or in the US, we call it microtransit. But we have to be careful in terms of contextually how we introduce these offers so that uh, they don't do more harm than they, they bring benefit to society. And I think that that is the key, that we don't get seduced by technology for technology's sake, just to um, build out a futuristic smart city and to check off all the boxes. But we're at, at what cost and what harm are we bringing? Yeah, exactly. That's a great point because... Sometimes we get seduced by, you know, the, the nice words. Everybody's talking about metaverse right now. So they don't really talk about actual uh, solutions, right? So we need to really be careful and um, think about it real, uh, a little deeper. So I, I want to go to, to uh, something that is uh, very important. Everything is linked when it comes to public transport, when it comes to mobility. Also, urban planning is extremely important in this case because you need to have a good urban planning to provide a good good mobility and everything around it. Uh, good use of urban space is also quite important. This is something that came up with uh, free-floating scooters and uh, bikes uh, recently because they were taking some uh, some space uh, all over. Uh, I want to I want to have your opinion uh, on, on urban planning. What is, according to you, um, a good way for a city to implement urban planning? What do you think they need to focus on? Because obviously they... There is some research linked to that. They need to obviously plan everything, look at their current state, uh, and then you know do the improvements. Um, but I want to have your opinion on this uh, because you have uh, you know you have experience with urban planning. What is, according to you, a great way to implement urban planning for a city? And I would love to have a few examples, um, whether it's in Europe or in the United States, so that our listeners can actually, after the podcast, uh, look up those examples and uh, see what a good uh, uh, urban planning uh, implementation is. So urban planning is interesting because traditionally in Europe and North America, it's taken a very uh, top-down approach. And the top-down approach was imposed by the private sector and the public sector, private sector business, public sector governments, and imposing the, uh, the, the form and the function of cities. Certainly as a result of many centralized approaches to um, urban planning here in Europe, you know, over the course of the last few centuries related to, I would say, um, you know, responses to different um, social upheavals 
wars, pandemics, plagues, etc. Here in Lisbon, you know, you had centralized urban planning as a result of the great Lisbon earthquake in the 18th century. And the the, the famous construction engineer, uh, Marquis Pumbal, who basically reorganized the entire city of Lisbon and the network more around kind of a a functioning um, kind of capital city. Uh, Certainly Baron von Haussmann in Paris, who reorganized Paris in the 19th century during the reign of um, Napoleon III around, uh, you know, a functioning centralized capital city that could uh, put down any uh, insurrections, but also kind of reorganize the city away from kind of a a medieval uh, street network towards something that was more of a a grand and Baroque kind of capital uh, vision of power. Or as we can see in um, Washington, D.C., the capital of the U.S., you know, uh, these capital cities have a very top-down centralized view of urban planning. That legacy continues through the 20th century. Um, But we also have, as another layer to that, a bottom-up approach to urban planning, which is we Americans call grassroots, local. There's many different terms that are, you know, kind of in vogue right now. A term that I think is very relevant, certainly during COVID, is called tactical urbanism. So it's a very kind of tactical, localized view for a do-it-yourself urbanism, you know, creating your own uh, open street, creating your own bike lane, creating your own parklet, et cetera. And basically these uh, quick fix interventionist methods that deliver uh, results for um, everyday people versus this very hierarchical bureaucratic approach. So just to kind of get back to how urban planning fits into COVID, fits into micromobility, mass, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a point to this, which is that the, the uh, direction that urban planning has moved uh, during COVID has uh, been a bit more towards the bottom up view of urban planning. So more of a localized neighbor, neighborhood centric approach. So if I were to compare two key figureheads in the world of urban planning in the 20th century, at least in North America, those would be one from top-down urban planning would be Robert Moses, the um, the highway constructor and builder in New York City in the for a much uh, many decades um, of the 20th century, and then his uh, nemesis, uh, which was a champion of local neighborhood-centric, um, you know, tactical urbanism, is Jane Jacobs, who the the famous um, author of the book The Death and Life of Great American Cities, who lived in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, New York, and talked about having a real localized, um, human-centric view of urbanism is really the the path we need to go in. So COVID has kind of laid bare a lot of these different schools of thought, how we view, how we organize cities, how we prioritize uh, our policies, our programs, and thinking about really um, how we've been stuck the last 75 years in North American and European cities since the Second World War. So I talked previously, the question you gave me, you know, about kind of the evolution of cities and taking that very, um, I like to call this future-centric view, uh, which was rooted in the interwar period, like I'd mentioned, between the first and second war, that of modernism or the International School of Architecture. And that basically set the template for urban planning for the next 75 years in North American Europe. Single land use, single mode, et cetera, et cetera, very segregated uses. So COVID has laid bare all of these structural deficiencies so that now everything is flipped on its head we're looking at much more of a neighborhood-centric view, uh, a qualitative view of urbanism that is rooted in equity, is rooted in um, healing the wounds of racial inequities from the past, like I mentioned, the highway building in, in the U.S., as well as the segregation of land uses, and stitching cities back together. So really, and thinking about mobility as that common thread 
to heal the wounds of these uh, urban deficiencies and to take a post-Second World War view of urban planning that now is rooted, one, in innovation and digital technology, but is also looking at the past too and what made sense at a human level, maybe even pre-industrial revolution. So now we're talking about the market towns in Great Britain in the 16th and 17th century before the advent of large-scale factories in Manchester and Birmingham and Liverpool. So we're thinking about really this small localized trips and journeys, but how digital technology, how public and private mobility can feed into this whole ecosystem and provide a more human-centric, sustainable future for urbanism, but rooted in urban planning practices that are either take a systematic process. They're not completely chaotic. They follow a, a certain organization, but they are much more in tune with the needs of the local populace and they are uh, bottom up. So to uh, kind of ground that in reality is aligned with a lot of the principles, which I'm certainly a proponent of, even though it could be considered top down urban planning here in Europe, which is the uh, SUMP process, sustainable urban mobility planning process. And it's quite interesting because um, I think there are opportunities for improvement in the SUMP process to align with digital innovation, to align with mass, to align with micromobility. But the entire structure is formulated on mobility as the common thread of all forms of how we organize land uses, the urban environment, and we provide for a sustainable uh, future. And I think it's the logical starting point for how we view cities as living organisms. And I think the, the sump structure is very, very logical. It takes a kind of a, a very interesting cyclical process through public engagement, as well as building out the different uh, layers of um, use cases that position, I would say, investments in physical infrastructure to support these desired outcomes related to sustainable mobility. So what I mean by that is specific examples now. So the specific examples which are kind of a key outcome to the sustainable urban mobility planning process on a digital realm and a physical realm. The physical realm to start off with a great example would be investments at a tactical level of active transportation and shared use mobility hubs. And these two different pillars are interesting because they are used as a basis to promote better mobility access and to basically um, induce modal shift away from automobile uh, over-dependence. So I think by investing in the physical environment, shared use mobility hubs, whether it be bike, kick scooter, multimodal transfer stations that are located uh, adjacent to land uses and density that allow for high pedestrian activity as well as economic development are really interesting. And these are part of that um, sump planning process. But then we now look at the digital layer as an enabler to actually promote better innovation because there's two sides to this. And the digital layer is essentially, whether it be mobile apps, whether it be connectivity, whether it be mass, et cetera, et cetera, in providing an ecosystem for innovation for private investors, startups, as well as other ventures to participate and add value into that ecosystem. So I think the planning process, I'm not saying you have to have a top-down structure, but you have to have some type of structure. And I think the, the sump structure here in Europe makes sense, but it has to be better influenced and formed by a bottom-up 
tactical urbanist, I would say, um, philosophy, but rooted in an outcomes-based approach that leads to investments in digital and physical infrastructure that promote better multimodal outcomes and sustainable uh, futures. So I think that that's really how we tie in mass, we tie in micromobility, we tie in urban planning, and we tie in how these cities are making short and long-term investments in the future. And to your point, because I think you asked me this before, what are the key takeaways? What are the examples of that, that viewers can actually research and, and look for themselves? They're happening all over Europe right now. So where do I start? Here in Lisbon, I mean, you have pop-up bike lanes, expansion of the entire city bike network as promoted in the Velocity, the Low City Conference a few months ago here in Lisbon. So Lisbon is becoming really that cyclist uh, hub in Europe right now. I'm uh, certainly in uh, Berlin, one of my other favorite cities in Europe. I mean, the expansion of pop-up and Corona cycleways throughout the city, such as the Kreuzberg district and others. They were some, one of the first areas to introduce these emergency measures that have now become permanent, as well as I think it's a 30 kilometer uh, zone that they're looking to promote for car-free travel in the city, uh, the uh, Mitte district in the center of Berlin. So really amazing stuff happening. Of course, uh, you know, the um, regional bikeway network that they they have just approved for Milan in um, in Lombardy, in northern Italy. Amazing stuff going on there. As well as, of course, Barcelona. We have the Superblock system, which is basically a natural extension of us urbanists who we all studied Barcelona in graduate school. Um, to use the Catalan word, it's the eschample, the extension of the original medieval core of Barcelona, basically the gridded systems to the north and east along the Mediterranean shore. They're basically creating a super box system of uh, pedestrian corridors. I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, One of the first cities to introduce outdoor dining and open seating was the capital of Lithuania. Vilnius, Lithuania was the first before New York City, before any other city across the world. Vilnius was doing it first in terms of having an outdoor dining environment that promoted social distancing, but also allowed for economic activity. And the list goes on and on. Uh, So I think that any one of these, um, you know, use cases could be uh, researched and kind of um, further explored, but they're all part of either a tactical urbanist approach to kind of emergency intervention. But now what's happening is they're slowly evolving into the long-term infrastructure planning process for all uh, European municipalities, which is interesting because we thought that these would be temporary measures. They might drop off. Now here comes back to the contrast of North American Europe. So we got to look back both sides of the Atlantic. A lot of these temporary uh, corona measures are rolling back in the US now. So you have a lot of the open streets program in many cities like San Diego, like Oakland, like other cities, and they're opening them back up to cars now. That's not good. That is not good at all. That's just rolling the clock back to 2019 and before. So we have not learned anything and we're not rooting these new uh, forms of, I would say, sustainability with a localized presence into something that uh, can be um, expanded and scaled long-term. So I think in many instances, in certain U.S. cities, we're regressing, we're going back to an auto-centric future, which is very unfortunate. I think you mentioned this before, Constantine, this over-reliance on electric vehicles, this over-reliance on single modality, the doubling down on using a lot of the funding from the US $1.1 trillion infrastructure act to basically uh, build new highways in North America is very uh, disturbing. 
And that was part of some of my critiques of the bill, even though there's some interesting grant funding opportunities by U.S. Department of Transportation. But I see here in Europe, we're actually using this crisis as a basis for opportunity for a better future. So with crisis comes opportunity. And I don't want to tip the scales too much in the European side right now, but I think certainly when it comes to um, blending urbanism, blending COVID, blending shared mobility, and aligning with, um, I would say, uh, more strategic policy outcomes, I'm seeing a lot of um, positive activity uh, here in mainland Europe. You mentioned something something uh, that I want to discuss again uh, with regards to the pop-up uh, measures that were implemented in the United States. I read some articles and they were quite popular actually with, uh, with the community, uh, but I don't understand why they are now reverting back to the old ways or to the, to the cars, uh, seeing that there was some success with these pop-up bike lanes uh, and other measures. Uh, where do you think The, the issue is coming from, is it more based on the, the government or the regulations? Because the people obviously uh, love them and use them. So there is a need, a demand for uh, these uh, pop-up bike lanes in the United States. Because if you look at Europe, uh, a lot of these uh, pop-up measures ultimately became permanent because they looked at the people using it and they looked at the success. Uh, so they implemented it. But I would like to understand how come in the United States even though you know, some things are successful and they are obviously used by the people, there is a need for it and it's, it improves the overall well-being of the society, the community and everybody, all the stakeholders involved. Why do they still then go back and focus on the car? Does it has, have to do with you know, the, you know, the, the power of the, the car manufacturers in the, in, in, in the United States, for example? Uh, I would like to understand the, the key aspects that, that influence this type of uh, you know, uh, action because it does not make sense from, from the outside looking in uh, as a European person. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And as an American living in Europe, I can provide a bit of context to better understand why we may be regressing. And there's a logical reason for that. And it is based on uh, historical and cultural factors. So it comes back to history again, right? So uh, our culture and our history is based on individualism, is based on... Um, individual space, not on shared personal space, as well as shared mobility. So I think that that is what uh, positions us as North Americans, certainly towards uh, kind of individual uh, modes of transport. So just by our very cultural DNA, we are adverse to, I would say, public transport, as well as anything that is more collectivist. So by looking at that, Corona crisis certainly provided an opportunity to experiment, certainly from an urbanist perspective, uh, open streets, pop-up bike lanes, and more tactical urbanist measures in North America. You saw many different cities implementing this, Pittsburgh, New York, San Diego, Oakland, Austin, etc. And now we see over half of them rolling back to the status quo. And again, um, in our cultural DNA, and I can speak this as American, as uh, one myself too, it's really, I would say, at our core, There's a suspicion of kind of um, governmental interventions in shared space, in shared mobility, anything that's really collective. So I think that we're kind of reverting back to what is comfortable for us. And what is comfortable is the status quo, unfortunately. So as at least it's perceived that the pandemic is receding, uh, even though we're going through still different waves, variants, et cetera, and it keeps coming back, although I, I know at some point it's going to decline. But I think that there's a bit more of um, 
a, a level of um, comfort, at least on the part of Americans. These are now viewed as more just kind of temporary interventions, and that's all it is. So cars king in the U.S., personal mobility is king, and corporate interests that lobby for these types of modes are king. So what we're seeing in the North America and the U.S. right now is simply a shift from internal combustion engine to electric vehicles. But the mode is the same. It's individual automobiles. So we're not ever seeing a real pivot towards active transportation, only at a very localized, disconnected level, like the bike path across the Brooklyn Bridge in the East River in New York City. That's great. That's one bike path. Or we see different expansion of you know active transportation measures, kind of an ad hoc basis. They expanded the bike network in Chicago. Um, they do have an open streets program in Oakland and other cities. I know Seattle's doing some interesting stuff, but by and large, I would say when you look at the entire continent or the nation kind of writ large, not a lot has changed. The only thing has changed is we have a stimulus investment to backfill a disinvestment in uh, operations and maintenance of public transport over the last 40 to 50 years. So what we're doing is we're basically backfilling a disinvestment in public infrastructure. So this is really not even rooted in new, I would say, sustainable modes of mobility or active transportation, but just it's playing catch up essentially. And that's really what it is. So I think we're really kind of rooted in the status quo. And that that's really, um, that's our cultural worldview, which is quite different than, than Europe. And that explains why from the outside looking in, why we might be taking a few steps backwards. Thanks for, for uh, clearing that up. But you mentioned that um, the states reverted back to the car because they are more comfortable with the car. I guess you, you were alluding to the people, but also the, the, you know, the government and so on. If they are more comfortable with the car, that means that to actually have um, you know, improvements and start using other, other modes, there needs to be a change in behavior, I guess. And a change in behavior is something that takes time. If you look at uh, where Denmark or the Netherlands are right now, it took you know many many years to to have a, a great great uh, bike bike policy and so on, great infrastructure, and I think it has to do with the change in behavior, change in habits. But it's hard to create a change in behavior uh, behavior in a society that always reverts back to what is comfortable. I guess even though I I think. Um, Uh, the United States is quite innovative in, in a lot of things, and uh, but it's it's uh, it's unfortunate to see that they are lacking a little bit behind uh, with um, the different modes of uh, mobility and uh, other so solutions. So that's um, yeah unfortunate to to see. To continue on on this subject, I want to discuss mass solutions because I think to be able to create a great mobility solutions, there needs to be a balance between public transport, private. Uh, free-floating and not free-floating mobility solutions like uh, shared electric cars, uh, shared cars, shared scooters, shared bikes and so on, and also public transport. And I believe that mass solutions uh, can or could provide a solution that can um, really, on a scale, have uh, create a balance for all these different uh, modes of transport. But I'm not sure where mass solutions are at this point or at this stage and providing a scalable uh, solution that can be used uh, in an efficient way uh, by the mass public. And I know you have uh, you have some experience, expertise, and knowledge in mass as well as in public transport. So you are the best person to to have uh, to have like uh, an opinion and advice 
on this subject. So I would I would want to have um, yeah your opinion on this, and uh, also maybe talk about the future of of mass as well. Where do you think mass is heading in the next two years, for example? Because the far future is hard to predict when it comes to mobility. Because uh, as you saw with COVID, almost all the shared operators had no operations. And then now the, a few months later or a year later, they are bigger than they even were before COVID. So it's very hard to predict uh, mobility. So yeah, please provide your opinion on, on, on mass and how mass can really um, provide a balance between all these different but great uh, mobility uh, modes and options because each mobility mode and option has their own value for the society. So we need to give credits to all these different mobility uh, modes because they all add a value to a person's um, mobility. Uh, you don't always need to use a car or a bike. You can also use public transport. You can, you can sometimes use a, a tram or a train or a bus or, or, a, or a scooter or a, or a shared uh, bike. So they all have their own added value and a person's mobility. So creating a balance between all these different modes will, I think, um, create an overall value for the society if it can be done good uh, on a scale and if it can be efficient. Yeah, well, uh, mass is tricky. It's really tricky. It's had a bumpy road the, the first five, six years. And um, it's it's failed to turn a profit. So it's being really scrutinized right now by investors, by policymakers, uh, and other um, you know key decision makers. And people are really scratching their heads like, well, okay, it's been a lot of a lot of talk, a lot of marketing, a lot of hype, but what's the results? Where where, where are we going from here? So we're we're at a real kind of um, inflection point right now. Exactly. Actually, what I wanted to, to add is, don't you think it would benefit the mass uh, companies if the government would be a shareholder or a stakeholder, or if we, if the government would uh, subsidize it or uh, fund it? Because then they would not rely too much on funding from uh, investors, but the government can really accelerate the mass offering. Okay, so yeah, that's one of the key changes in the mass ecosystem right now, or the pivot. Uh, so it's moving away from a purely privatized, you know, commercial model, which was a business to consumer, you know, an aggregator of all shared mobility services. That's what we saw the first five years. You know, that would be. Um, City Mapper, that would be Wim, that would be my former employer, Free to Move, uh, that would be others. We're just, you know, a, a simple aggregation of whatever's available via APIs, at least for just base discoverability. But that provided minimal value to consumers, even if it were bundled into subscription packages, because again, a lot of the time the consumer experience was very negligible because you had discoverability, but you would have to jump or deep link to another third-party app to complete your journey and complete your transaction, your per purchase. So many uh, consumers, uh, one, would just stick with their own existing apps they already interact with. And that basically dilutes the whole value proposition of mass right from the start, one. And then two, the individual mobility providers, the MSPs, uh, were very fearful, at least for the first five years, to even um, participate or be aggregated in these platforms because they lose their relationship with their customers. So it was kind of a lose-lose situation from the start. Not only that, but it's like uh, slicing the pie in a million pieces. The opportunities for profit were so minimal that you're 
sharing, um, you know, a piece uh, revenue on transactions that are so uh, microscopic that it, it's not even a real scalable solution from a commercial perspective or from a business model perspective. So that's what I call Mass 1.0 or the business to consumer model. And that's what's been heavily criticized for good reason because it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So now we're at this change, this inflection point where we're deconstructing the mass model, but starting with the business model, because the consumer interface is really interchangeable. I mean, the consumer will interact with a smartphone app and they'll kind of complete their journey through a series of steps. But looking at the business model is interesting because now we're looking at intermediaries kind of subsidizing the service, as you had just mentioned. So uh, public authorities are serving as their that intermediary to basically uh, deliver shared mobility or mass services to direct consumers through more, I would say, marketplaces or ecosystems. So that model we could call business to government to consumer, B to G to C. That's one area. But then another area that's interesting is private operators or private corporates are also looking to um, kind of participate in the mass ecosystem and invest in either apps or interfaces that integrate and aggregate services. So that would be business to business to consumer. So you have these two kind of, I would say, uh, pivots in the mass ecosystem that have either a public or private anchor clients as this uh, authority to basically orchestrate the services and help subsidize. So that's the only way mass can prove to be viable because the direct-to-consumer model obviously will, will not work. Otherwise, people just can use their individual apps. So that's one area. But another area that's interesting too, that is an opportunity for governments, is to create more, um, I would say, open marketplaces for mobility where they can create an exchange of services and allow for the uh, supply of services that are, I would say, collected or aggregated into a marketplace offered to multiple consumer channels. So you have multiple apps and multiple websites that participate in this marketplace and then deliver even more multimodal shared uh, journeys through the network effect. So I think these are the opportunities that are quite exponential. And this mass is becoming more complex, but it's also becoming more centralized by being subsidized. And it's looking to provide value across consumer channels. That's one trend, or that I would like to call that a little bit more of maybe the, not the European trend, but the, the trend that's a bit more decentralized. Now, the other trend we're seeing in mass right now, or there's a lot of hype, but it's skeptical how that can scale because I'm uh, still a bit on the fence about this, which is the super app model, kind of the one app to rule them all, which is starting to colonize Europe from Southeast Asia, from Grab, Uber, and all the other operators in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, et cetera, which is a highly deregulated, highly privatized model that kind of exploits minimal government oversight so that they can basically privatize and control the mobility ecosystem. I find that to be, it's going to be very challenging to introduce a super app type of offer to scale in Europe or North America, given the uh, political as well as regulatory landscape, even in both markets on both sides of the Atlantic. So it's going to be a very fragmented market. In my personal opinion, you're not going to have a Bolt app or an Uber app or a Grab app rule it all throughout Europe or in North America. I just think it's, it's going to be really tricky and impossible due to regulatory concerns, data sharing, as well as 
the uh, just the entire uh, stakeholders and ecosystems involved. So I think there's going to be a mix and match, but I do think that multiple paths to mass are logical. Investing in kind of regional platforms that build out supply are another logical direction. And then not thinking of mass as this simplistic smartphone app that just provides one interface, but it's really uh, much more of a digital infrastructure layer. That's something I've written about as well, too. So it's not, mass is not an app. Mass is this digital, I would say, ecosystem that enables uh, better customer journeys and allows for more seamless door-to-door mobility as an alternative to uh, single car ownership. So I think that's the outcome. It's Mass is going to be much more outcomes-based in the future and less fixated on how many bookings or transactions or how many downloads or how much user acquisition. We're going to be moving away from that, Mass 1.0, much more to this kind of ubiquitous kind of infrastructure that enables more multimodal, um, I would say, complex journeys. And that's really the direction of the future the next two to three years. But I'm not convinced that it's the super app, one app to rule them out because that's just an extension of Mass 1.0, but on a bigger scale. So if it didn't work in Mass 1.0, how is a super app going to work to scale across a continent? I am very doubtful that, that that's, that's, that's possible. Yeah, thanks. Actually, I, I will challenge you a little bit on your opinion about the super app. When we look at Mass and one of the issues Mass had is integrating uh, all these different providers of mobility. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of time. They all have their own processes, different uh, credit cards, uh, solutions, and so on. So it's very complex. But when I look at a super app, for example, Uber is really good in um, providing a good user experience inside the app. For example, when you use Uber Eats, um, you can also order a car and Uber or the other way around because everything is owned and made by Uber, right? So everything is very simple, straightforward, and Uber has the, has, has the control over the whole user experience, right? Which makes it very appealing for, for the users. And I, I believe um, if Uber, for example, would also have the transit, I, actually, I believe Uber also has Lime scooters and Lime bikes um, and the app. So you can book an Uber, you can also book a scooter or a bike, and you can also book Uber Eats. And if they could do the transits, I think in, in the United States, they, I saw some partnership with some transit agencies. I'm not sure how, how it is in the app, but I often use, when I was in Lisbon uh, for my birthday, uh, I used Uber for the drive, but also Uber Eats inside the same app. And it was a seamless experience. So I, I think maybe mass might go in this direction in the future because we see that these other apps that already exist like Uber start to adopt actually the mass solution, but doing it better than these mass companies actually. What, what do you think about that? I agree. I agree that there's going to be more consolidation in the mass ecosystem. So I think the large, as we call them, TNCs, the ride hail providers, are going to be building out more multimodal offers. They're going to be integrating more public transport. They're going to be integrating with other um, shared mobility providers. They're going to be creating their own kind of mass ecosystems, or they're really walled gardens. So they're going to be their private ecosystems. And I think that's going to expand and continue, but they're not mutually exclusive. You're not going to have Uber dominate. Lisbon. You're not going to have Uber dominate London. You're going to have multiple Ubers or multiple offers, not necessarily competing, but kind of building out a bigger ecosystem. But again, in my definition, 
that seamless experience uh, in the Uber example you, you mentioned is very interesting and it's very appealing. And it plays a, a, a strong role in terms of uh, adding value for consumers. But that's still not the one app to rule them all, though. That's still not the super app, though. That is still a subset. And uh, I guess to um, look at the more, I would say, um, specific definition, the ambitions of the super apps are really one app, one market, everything. And that, I just feel, is going to be almost impossible. Cities and ecosystems are too complex. There's always going to be room for uh, competition. And quite honestly, that Uber model that you mentioned, if taken too far, is too monopolistic. And that will basically uh, exploit uh, consumers and users if taken too far. So we have to have a good uh, balance between public and private supply and multiple consumer channels that everyone prefers so that they have their own preference so that they can complete their multimodal journey without being reliant on one app. You can't all be reliant on one Uber app. We all can't be relying on one PTA app. There has to be multiple apps rooted in individual preferences. And that's where building out more of a supply and an ecosystem of shared mobility is quite interesting. And again, that's opposed to that kind of centralized, privatized super app model, which I don't want to just say I'm opposed to. I just am doubtful that it's even scalable. It just one, it's it can't happen, and two, uh, I don't think that uh, um, knowing you know the messy nature of cities and individuals, not every single inhabitant in Lisbon or Berlin or London is going to download one app. We're, we're not, you know, we're not monoliths, and I just don't see that scaling out. So every offer and every multimodal combination has its own value proposition. It could be. Uh, free now and its integration with shared mobile. It could be uh, sixth in Germany, you know, how they've integrated their services. But each one sort of competes with one another, but they, they build out a wider supply of choices for consumers, which may or may not cannibalize one another. But I feel like it, it's kind of a healthy competition. And yeah, it's going to kind of muscle out the smaller mass providers. Uh, and we're going to see more consolidation in the future. That's a trend. But it's not going to be completely monopolistic or monolithic. And I don't think, quite honestly, uh, regulators and public authorities, certainly here in Europe uh, with GDPR and other regulations, they won't even let that happen if they wanted to. So it's really a moot point. It's not going to happen. Yes, you challenged me on my point, but I I think we're kind of meeting in the middle. We we kind of agree. Exactly. I totally agree because when we're talking about mass apps or the super apps, especially in Europe, you need to take into account that every country in Europe, every city has their own regulations. It's extremely difficult to just have one solution for all Europe because Europe, it's a, a complex, uh, complex, complex area. So that's, that's a great point. And I think that is one of the reasons why it will be almost impossible, like you mentioned, just to compare these different areas. When you see that in China, the super apps were able to get some success, right? So how come in China, for example, they were able to get some success? Does it have to do with, you know, China being just one one regulations kind of uh, all over? And when you look at Europe, it's, you know, a little bit different. Every country has their own regulations, laws, and so on. And I think in the States, the United States, different states have their own rules and regulations as well, I guess, right? Uh, so I guess the policy and the regulation aspects really plays a huge influence and, um, rolling out implementation, execution of, of these solutions, right? So there needs to be a balance, a partnership and collaborations 
with the with the regulators if yeah we want to make a change. Absolutely, I think the very nature of uh, regulation authority in Asian markets um, is a bit more centralized. So if you have um, one point of contact with uh, a business entity, it's less fragmented. So that means that the possibility of a uh, private venture such as a super app is more scalable in those markets. And I think that that's why we see a lot of this, I would say, kind of investment activity coming from that market more so into Europe and other regions. And certainly in Europe and in North America, North America or the US based upon different state regulations, and then in Europe based upon different sovereign states, it's, a, it's more fragmented. So by it being fragmented, that is not scalable for a widespread mass super app solution, which is why we have to treat a lot of the marketing hype that, oh, super apps are coming in reality because it's just not possible. And you would have to change the entire regulation of every nation state to be collectivized into one unified approach. And that, that will not happen for the, uh, the provision of one app, basically. Exactly, exactly. This whole uh, episode of, of, uh, of podcast was, uh, I believe, uh, about um, creating a balance and uh, all the different modes of transport. Uh, but there's one mode that we haven't really discussed, and that is the shared bikes and shared scooters. And I want to see, uh, I want to have your opinion on how shared um, uh, operators uh, with bikes and scooters can help create this balance, uh, for example, through data sharing, because now uh, in Europe, there are agreements with different European cities for these operators to create, uh, to share their data. And I believe that is going in the right direction. I believe um, once the, op the regulators have uh, data, they will be able to regulate better uh, and that will help with the whole creating a balance and the different modes of transport as well. Uh, but I would like to have your uh, your opinion on the data sharing uh, between private um, uh, operators, organizations, and the and the government, and how that can help in creating a balance, or or how it cannot help in creating a balance, and the overall um, mobility infrastructure and mobility offering, if it can help. Data sharing uh, between private operators and cities over the past uh, two or three years starting in North America, and then I'll talk about Europe, has been a bit tricky. And it was in tricky, I'm going to talk about the problem first. Uh, you're talking about the opportunity, but there's been a problem though. And the problem has been um, MDS. The problem has been what's been going on in Los Angeles with the, the very tricky rollout of MDS and um, the, the legal challenges between uh, first Uber in the city of Los Angeles, and then with the American Civil Liberties Union and Los Angeles in the rollout of MDS, which basically uh, mandated and required private mobility operators to provide the real-time tracking and location of scooters and bikes throughout the city, which was deemed to be uh, a violation of um, constitutional protections for the Fourth Amendment, meaning that the, the data, if it comes into the hands of law enforcement or other regulators, could be used to track down individuals. And even though the data was anonymized, it can be reverse engineered to find the individual location of people, which can be very dangerous. So there's a lot of risks to data sharing um, in terms of what requirements are on part of the city, what are the uses of data, how are they going to store it, and how is it going to be protected? So I think that we, we got off to really a rough start in terms of this communication between uh, private mobility operators and cities in terms of collaboration, because 
Even before the imposition of MDS in Los Angeles, we saw many different shared mobility operators, certainly in North America, just uh, completely um, avoid any regulations at all and just operate their um, their supply in in any uh, you know neighborhoods without any type of communication. So we're we're kind of maturing in the market, coming to a better understanding of the data standards of the attributes of the individual elements that will be shared between regulators and operators, and then coming to a common understanding of the desired outcomes for um, better planning, better policy, and improvement of the uh, physical infrastructure so that um, shared mobility basically reinforces uh, more sustainable outcomes for cities and better balances the opportunities for accessibility as well as equity. So by better balancing the location distribution of scooters through data sharing, our opportunities for regulators and and policymakers to make informed decisions based upon patterns, based upon usage, and based upon um, opportunities for making new investments in, let's say, uh, mobility hubs, bike paths, pedestrian lanes, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one area. But getting back to the data itself, as we kind of mature into this kind of collaborative model. There's many different kind of third-party private operators in the ecosystem that uh, basically kind of, uh, I would say, uh, cleanse, they offer, and then they repackage and visualize data for cities so that they can make informed decisions. And I'm not going to name any different, you know, tech providers out there, but, you know, anyone can kind of search for them on their own. But it's a challenge in terms of aligning with the data standards, in terms of the maturity of MDS or other shared mobility um, specifications, but also the third parties that provide uh, an interesting and valued service for cities that really don't have the in-house capabilities to basically make these informed decisions. There still lies the challenge that how data can be used for the greater good so that it does not become like we saw in the use case of Los Angeles. There was a risk of the data falling into the wrong hands, being privatized and being monetized, like basically data for sale. Basically, if you know the real time tracking and monitoring of people, then you know their consumer habits. And then basically you can monetize and commercialize it because basically it just becomes a data mine. So cities have to play a very uh, careful uh, and tricky role in terms of using that data for shared mobility for specific narrow use cases that are in the public good that serve basically the built environment and serve public policy. And they do not become monetized or commercialized because then that is where the gathering, the capture and the storage of data becomes a potential um, treasure trove of information for private commercial interest to exploit the weaknesses of city governance for uh, monetary purposes. And that's really, that's not the objective of data sharing between private mobility operators and cities. So there's a real high risk in terms of how this collaboration takes place. One, two, the standards and specifications in the data sharing, the attributes that are very narrow, they're not real-time tracking, but they're just anonymized for these general historical patterns of movement. And three, looking at how data is best processed by either cities themselves or third parties 
in the best interest of the public good. So we really have to think about these uh, fundamental questions of data sharing. It's not just about uh, send me your API and you comply with MDS checkbox. And there's a bunch of other stuff going on here. And not only that, what's happening here in Europe, what happened at the Polis conference last week where they aligned MDS um, to uh, comply with GDPR regulation, which is still a bit weak right now. And uh, they have a policy guide with that and I support that, but uh, still a lot more thought has to be placed into that because again, as we Americans say, that's fitting a, a square peg into a round hole is the American term, meaning that, you know, MDS is a square peg, but you're trying to fit in this round hole of GDPR. It doesn't fit. As MDS was written with the agency API and how it was specified, it's a direct violation of GDPR. So how can this scale to European cities? Let's see. I don't know. Uh, you know, they had legal advice that, that was formulated into a policy guide. And I think that's a step in the right direction. But more work needs to be done. Not only that, but how is MDS going to scale to European cities when other cities and regions are already coming up with their own competing data, uh, data sharing standards? So the, the story is not written yet in Europe in terms of how micromobility and mass data sharing will uh, happen in the future. And MDS is not the silver bullet. There, there might be many data standards. And I think that the key takeaway is that mass platforms, as well as micromobility operators, need to remain agnostic and not geared towards one standard. Because if we become uh, focused or fixated on one standard, then we run the risk of all these other different uh, commercial, regulatory, and even law enforcement risks creeping into this ecosystem and not being flexible enough to um, focus on the desired outcomes, which is shared sustainable mobility and not a standard for the sake of a standard, which is basically, in my opinion, Constantine, that's like building technology. You build tech. This is a very uh, similar kind of Silicon Valley notion. You build the tech and they will come to it. That's not what this is about. You need to de define the outcomes and build the technology and standards to fit those outcomes. It's not the other way around because in that essence, that's a solution looking for a problem. And that's not where we need to be right now. Otherwise, we're going to create more problems such as what we saw in the use case of the city of Los Angeles DOT. I think you made a great, great point there because just ha having the data sharing is not enough. The government and the regulators also need to be capable to use the data uh, for the greater goods. They need to be, um, uh, obviously, they need to be able to analyze the data and put the data to greater goods. Otherwise, there's no point in just sharing the data if, it's, if it cannot be used. So that was uh, one of the great points you really made, uh, made uh, there and clarified this issue because it's actually a very complex, complex issue when it comes to data sharing and it has very different levels, uh, levels to it uh, that people uh, haven't really discussed yet. And the articles that I read, it was great that you really went, went deep into that. So Scott, you've been in uh, mobility for uh, over a decade. You have a lot of experience in different fields of mobility. Uh, because mobility is, of course, very large. It's about different uh, departments. Uh, to kind of like conclude this uh, first part of the episode, because I would like to do a second part episode with you somewhere in January. But to kind of like conclude this episode, uh, I just wanted to ask you more about, you know, um, what, what is your journey right now for the near future? Uh, what, what, what projects are you focusing on? Any new mobility uh, developments, for example, that you that you saw and are interesting for the for the listeners. Um, but I, I also wanted to just know 
what is your um, you know next uh, next projects or other next uh, project in terms of mobility? Yeah, thank you, Constantine. So uh, I'm going to be making an official announcement uh, beginning of January. So I have a new exciting uh, role and opportunity, but I'm going to be a bit more um, focused in doubling down on my background in urban planning and public transport. So kind of my new challenge, my new opportunity is really positioning the uh, primacy of public transport in urban mobility, as well as linking public transport to opportunities in multimodality and uh, reinforcing public transport to be resilient post-COVID. So I think uh, my new uh, challenge is really going to be evangelizing and to reinforcing public transport authorities to be the orchestrators of shared mobility, uh, but also to uh, better kind of position themselves in the ecosystem so that they are um, best suited for a much more uh, consumer and uh, a user-centric view of providing sustainable mobility. So with a really PTA focus in public transport and providing uh, digital tools and optimization to allow uh, public authorities to make informed decisions and uh, better be aligned with uh, consumer preferences of public and private offers going forward. So that, that's really going to be um, part of my, um, I would say, um, transition starting in January. But I'll be announcing to you and everyone in social media in a few weeks. So yeah, a little, little stealth right now, but very excited for um, what's to come in the near future. Congratulations on, on the on the new um, project and mobility. And it does sound a little bit uh, that you might be working with uh, data, <laughs> uh, hearing what you just uh, mentioned, because you mm -hmm. talked about many different aspects of mobility. And uh, usually that involves data that connects all these different things uh, of mobility. So I am quite excited to have you on the next part of this episode somewhere in January. So we can dive a little bit deeper into your new um, Yeah, your new venture, your new project, because it, it does seem it does seem quite exciting. And I know you are someone who is very passionate uh, with mobility. Obviously, you dedicated to your your entire life almost. So I know that you will you will have a lot to say in this in this new venture, and I cannot wait to to have you on it and discuss it. <laughs> so thank you very much for for being on this podcast. I highly appreciate it. Uh, thank you for all the advice, of course, with, uh, with Smooth City as well. I do have some new new updates uh, with Smooth City that I want to discuss with you as well, uh, and another call, of course. And yeah, I just want to thank you for being on the on this podcast. It's highly appreciated. No, it's been a pleasure. Yes, and I, I look forward to our part two.